This is the Reading Teacher's Lounge, where listeners can eavesdrop on professional conversations between elementary reading teachers. We're passionate about literacy and strive to find strategies to reach all learners. Shannon and Mary are neighbors who realized that they were literacy soul sisters at a dinner in their Atlanta neighborhood. Once they started chatting about reading, they haven't really stopped. Come join the conversation. Hello, welcome to the Reading Teachers Lounge. Um, today we are um, talking about the simple view of reading and beyond. This is episode nine from season five. So once again, season five, episode nine, the simple view of reading and beyond. Hi, I'm Shannon Betts, and I'm here with my co-host, Mary Sagafi, and we are the co-host of the Reading Teacher Sounds podcast, and we have a fabulous guest with us today, Dr. Janet Mort, who is going to share her, you know, more wisdom than we have about the simple view of reading and also um, where the research has taken us beyond um, that simple um, view understanding. So welcome to the Reading Teacher's Lounge. We are so glad to have you, Dr. Mort. I'm delighted to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself, um, your teaching experiences over the years, and then the work that you're currently doing with the within the world of literacy? Sure. Well, I'll start with a bit of a head shaker. This is my 50th year of being actively engaged in education. Uh, I did stop for six weeks to have a baby. Um, so I've had breaks from time to time, but they haven't been much longer than that. Um, my story goes back to probably a very pertinent time related to the simple view of reading. Uh, I started as a primary teacher when I was 18. That's how we get to 50 so so quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was a superintendent of schools in the 1980s. And that was the year uh, that the reading war was at its finest between um, the teachers who believed that phonics was the only approach we should be using to teach reading. And uh, a very large group of teachers had decided that whole language uh, was the route to go. And as superintendent, I found myself in the very difficult position Um, of having to live between these two groups of teachers who were, um, the the battles were getting pretty nasty um, in in terms of professional disrespect. Uh, And I wrote my first letter of of, um, uh, being the firm mother um, and writing to our teachers to say, let's be professional. We we have professional opinions. We have strategies that work better for some of us than they do for others. What I care about as your superintendent is professional respect and courtesy. And I also want you to use whatever strategies work best with your children. If your children can succeed at learning to read, um, then I'm very interested in whatever strategy you're using, but I'm not going to be critical of one or the other. What I want is for children to read. And that's really, uh, so that was the early 1980s. And at times were very tense because sometimes there were teachers in one classroom and teaching whole language and across the hall was a teacher who was only using phonics and they closed their doors on each other. So it was in 1986 that uh, we we didn't have 
much research at all related to literacy at that point uh, for a very good reason. The brain um, research, which drives literacy research and most other research related to the body, the brain research really didn't start to be applied to education until the early 2000s. If you, if you look back at library shelves, you will find that the first books in school libraries and professional libraries, I'm, I'm particularly referring to, the first books in professional libraries started to show up on library shelves in around 2000. Uh, so as teachers, um, we did very well doing our best at figuring out how to make things work for children, but we didn't have the benefit of in-depth studies at that stage. And it was in 1986 that um, the simple view uh, of reading um, was birthed um, by two gentlemen, I believe it was gentlemen, Goff and Tumner, uh, who created a formula um, because we were also at the time getting very concerned about intervention, created a formula to try uh, to determine um, which children um, were going to need intervention assistance and which children would not, um, so that we could in fact starting start to get very precise uh, about what we were teaching. Um, this was uh, highly welcome. This uh, the this study, these studies, because it followed a sequence of them after that. Uh, trying to refine uh, the formula and trying to refine um, uh, what exactly they were uh, defining uh, with respect to skills. Um, it was very welcome to me as a superintendent because we needed something to let to to plant our feet in, to plant our our um, uh, canes in, if you want to call it that, something to hold on to um, in in this. Uh, war that was being waged over what was right and what was wrong. And so uh, this, it was Goff and Tumner who defined that word recognition and language comprehension um, were in fact the skills that children needed most in order to be able to uh, learn to read. Uh, and that kind of gave, gave us something to anchor ourselves on. And I saw teachers then willingly start to work together to uh, turn their view uh, into practice in classrooms. And so suddenly we started to see flurries of workshops on what is word recognition? Uh, what does word recognition mean? And, and then at that point um, in the 80s, we started to explore all kinds of things related to word recognition. And we left the the word phonics behind for a while and really talked about decoding. And, and that's where decoding became a very big part of what we were doing every day in classrooms. So phonics kind of got set aside as that was a program. Decoding became something different. Decoding became a skill of breaking down a word. Um, so instead of spelling out a word, breaking down a word, and that was the shift in the emphasis at that time. Uh, so their work looked into the role of decoding in, in reading 
And that, by the way, and I'd like to be able to jump back and forth to the 80s to now, um, that is still very controversial. I'm doing workshops all the time out there. And uh, there is a lot of, uh, still a lot of discussion and still a lot of um, dispute about the role of decoding um, and what what proportion the role of decoding should play in our instruction. Um, sight words have been uh, part of the wars over the years. Um, uh, should children learn uh, by sight? Should they learn by or orthographic mapping? Um, so we have many of these different um, suggestions, let's put it that way, uh, come up as to how we ought to attack this. Um, today, I've taken uh, a really um, broad position on on the whole approach to decoding and orthographic mapping um, is to to teach teachers how how to use these strategies. Uh, but to understand that some children learn better through some strategies than others, and some teachers use some strategies better than others. So um, I take a very broad approach. Um, however, I'm very precise about my research. So I really know my research. And I'm going to step back now because you asked me a bit about my background. Um, I retired from the superintendency when I was 60. Um, I spent a year uh, trying to figure out what retirement should look like, might look like, could look like, uh, and came to a conclusion that there was one, un one unanswered question in my life that I really wanted to pursue, uh, at least one. And that was, why do 35% of children still not learn to read in the school system, even though we have brought them every strategy we can find. We have combed through the research, uh, paying attention to, to where the really good research is and where there's, um, I spend a lot of time talking with teachers about, is this an article or is this research? This is a really well-written article and it studies even 250 children, but who are those 250 children and what's their context? So. Uh, can we use this article as a stimulation in our classrooms to try something new and see if we can improve what we're doing in classrooms? Or is this a piece of research uh, that has been um, uh, curated, that has been uh, examined by 12 scholars in the literacy field um, that, that, uh, came from 6,000 different studies, was narrowed down to 500 studies, and then conclusions were drawn on only the 500 studies. Now, that is a piece of substantial research that we need to pay attention to. Um, at the same time, we... Uh, if you don't mind, I would just like to add, I love how you um, have explained that so beautifully. I think that teachers are often overwhelmed by the idea of research, but there are lots of professionals in the 
field of literacy who have done a lot of work. But I think that teachers ha um, have a two-prong issue with it. One is there is a big lack of time to actually go and research um, what are great research-based and evidence-based um, uh, pieces of information that could actually really help your children in the classroom. And secondly, is it an easier approach to have a conversation with someone? Is it an easier approach to have um, an article that you come across or even a TikTok video or something that um, you know catches your attention? But I think you're right. As professionals, we are actually held to a high standard and we need to know the difference between research-based articles and also articles um, mm -hmm. and suggestions. So I thought that was amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that with all of us. I'm, I have huge heart eyes just listening to you. I'm, I'm imagining sitting in your um, course in, in a, a university and, and just really enjoying it. So please continue for loving it. And thank you for stepping in because that's what I want you to do. I'm, I'm, I'm not a great, um, uh, I'm not the kind of person who sort of takes over and has a string of things to say, um, but ideas spark up in me that I think might be useful to your audience. So, um, and this is part of the journey that I went on. I, I had some, um, uh, you, you talk about teachers not having time. I spent four years doing nothing but examining research, nothing. And who gets an opportunity to do that? Um, I combed the walls of two different universities because I got to work at two different universities in my doctoral program. Um, and I turned my attention to early learning uh, as a focus uh, because I had a deep gut belief that we were missing it in the early learning years, in the primary years, that that all these children who get to grade seven and grade eight and still can't read and were madly trying to assign learning assistance teachers to them, that something went wrong way early on. And I started as a primary teacher. So in my mind, I am a primary teacher um, because I don't think you ever get to take your feet out of those shoes once they're, once they're in primary shoes. So um, I spent the four years, four and a half years in the doctoral program. And then I came out thinking, oh, maybe I'll write a book about what I think I've learned. Um, and instead, I started my own model of based on the the research I really believed in, I started my own model of um, what you would do in a classroom because I knew classrooms inside out as a superintendent. I was in them all the time, evaluating teachers, uh, looking at data from the school district results. And so um, I had a theory of what we needed to do in classrooms to get 90% of children reading at grade level. And I put word out to my superintendent colleagues who were still out there and said, is there anyone that's willing to host me in their district to work with volunteer teachers who want to try some interesting new strategies in their classroom? And I'm going to go back to the simple view of reading. So this is just to put all this in context. And so um, I now have a, a published framework. I call it a framework. Uh, it's called Joyful Literacy Interventions. Uh, it's intended for uh, kindergarten to grade two classrooms. Uh, and I'll tell you more about it uh, as we near the end. 
But um, when I started with the re- with my research study, of course, I came on the simple view of reading. And uh, one of the things that I observed is uh, a very wide uh, interpretation of what word recognition was. So in articles and in research papers, um, researchers were then starting to break down what what were we learning initially about word recognition and and listening comprehension. So this was extremely important work that these people did. And you mentioned Nell Duke in an earlier conversation, and I'm going to comment on she has done an exceptional job of taking the simple view of reading and turning it into what she calls an active view of reading. Um, And I didn't ask you, are you both primary teachers? Yes, we are. That's why (laughs) we connect so well. Yes. Yes. That's why your head started to bobble. (laughs) That's why we're... Yeah, Mary and- Mary has a special ed background, um, but she also taught kindergarten and I've taught um, kindergarten through third grade and then also been a reading specialist um, all the way up to eighth grade. Great. Mm-hmm. And Mary's yeah. an Orton Gillingham tutor. So. Oh, perfect. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I do, I do interventions with children um, on, on the private side. Fabulous. Mm-hmm. So um, all of this to say that this base work that was done and um, there hasn't been a lot uh, more research done. There's been, uh, I did a, a scan for all the research that's been done on the simple view of reading. Uh, most of the research was done um, through in through the 90s. And then you find smatterings of research on the simple view of, of reading um, that go right up to 2017. Um, one of my favorite people in the literacy field is Hugh Katz. Um, who makes so much sense out of explaining literacy. His his last name is spelled C-A-T-T-S. He's a very um, genuine person. I've had him uh, attend and speak at a number of summits. Um, I've been holding summits for educators on specific issues in literacy. Last year, we held one for 600 people on on what is dyslexia. And that's where I first met Hugh Katz. And we're holding one on the science of reading um, in Washington State um, in May. And uh, we have uh, 14 of the greatest experts on literacy coming to to that particular summit. Um, And each of them, like one of them, will pick up the topic of word recognition and the multiple ways that, that children... Uh, tackle word recognition and absorb it into their brains. And, and, and it happens in multiple different ways. It's one of the things we found out in the dyslexia summit last year is there is no one look. If, if you, if you could look inside um, a dozen children's heads inside and take a look at their brain and how it's functioning, it is not, the same place that you will find in each child's brain that is dysfunctional, that that, that dysfunction will show up in multiple places. And so- And sometimes it even happens um, at different times too. Um, so different days, some children's brains may be activated in different areas, different times. 
Exactly. Um, one of the things I love sharing with parents and children when they first come to me with a diagnosis of dyslexia is that if you've met one person with dyslexia, you've met one person with dyslexia. Exactly. Um, and I think that that's, um, it's, it's important to uh, relate that everyone's brain really is different and that's okay. And my job is to observe your behaviors and give you strategies. And your job is to reflect inside your own brain to see if that makes sense to you. And if it does, great. If not, I'll have another strategy for you to try. And I think that um, when you share that idea with parents or when you share that idea with children, maybe not so small, but when they get to be about third grade, they finally feel a little bit seen and a little bit understood. And I think that that part is is really critical for helping people who are neurodivergent to right. feel accepted and, and okay. Because a lot of times their inner dialogue is not that. Thank you so much. Keep sharing, please. Okay. So that was one spot where I think that Goff and Tumner um, uh, made a good effort. I'm very respectful of researchers. It is so much hard work uh, to research and to set up a research procedure and to stay true to it. So when I talk about 1986 and the research that was done then, um, I'm and 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 something that I think we need to investigate more and did need to investigate more. I'm not being critical of that research. This was the biggest, most important start. And I guess that's what I'd want your listeners to know: that the simple view of reading was the greatest gift uh, they could have given us during a time when there was so much confusion in the field of literacy. So uh, it was a massive gift and we're still working on it. Um, I heard the speakers in the dyslexia comment making reference to those first roots of understanding where in fact, what really good research should do for us is push us to ask new questions. That's what really good research should do. Uh, so uh, you take the National Reading Panel, for example, which um, has is where the five pillars come from in most school district curricula. Well, that research was done in the year 2000. The initial research was done in the year 2000. That is now 20 years ago. There should be right about now, sometime in the next five years, I'm anticipating there will be another massive research piece that further enlightens us. I doubt it will dispute much of what was in the the um, National Reading Panel work, but it will take us another step and another step further. This is what I look forward to in the new pieces. Um, one of the areas where uh, uh, I felt we needed to look more um, more closely was in the simple view of reading. They took the position that all reading difficulties stem from either a word recognition issue or a language comprehension issue. And we know now for sure that there are many, many reasons why uh, children need interventions. And, and, and it can range from social emotional issues. It can range from a lack of exposure to literacy in the, in their earliest years in their home environments. It can it can come from um, cultural issues uh, that differ from other children in the classroom, and that's part of our job is to figure out 
what intervention is needed. So um, I also looked at a lot of the studies that were done around the simple view of reading were done with older children, um, uh, often grade five, six, seven, eight. And if my theory is correct, and by the way, I believe my theory is correct, the issue is in the early years, that if, if we don't, and that's my passion, and that's what I've been working on. Joyful Literacy is now 10 years old. And when we implemented, it's been implemented in hundreds of classrooms now. When it's implemented faithfully, and we do have to, have to be faithful about our practices if we expect results, when it's implemented faithfully, um, we can bring 90% uh, of children in a classroom to reading at grade level, whether um, whether they're indigenous, whether uh, whether they come from another culture, uh, we've had some of the most um, we've taken in it in a be, between kindergarten and grade two. We've taken classes of children from forty percent reading at grade level to uh, or being ready to read at the beginning of kindergarten to 90% reading at grade level by the end of grade two. So we have a long track record now of success. And if we have time or maybe on another occasion, I can tell you what the features of that are. Um, the, let me, let me. I was going to say, Jim, I think that sounds fantastic. We would love to have you um, share some of those. I think any kinds of, um, you know, what works well and how teachers can work smarter, not harder, um, is is highly valuable um, to our listeners and especially to Shannon and I. So thank yeah. you. Can I say I love the title of Joyful Literacy Interventions. I was remembering um, during student teaching, my super, student teaching supervisor, Dr. Elizabeth Willis, I'd gotten so stressed out with like all the lesson planning and the, you know, the getting the grades together and just all the things that you have to do when you're a student teacher and you're doing it. And I was just so stressed out and I was not having fun with it. And I was kind of venting to her during our weekly meeting. And she just looked at me and she like put her hands on my hands and she took a breath and she said, Shannon, be joyful. Like you're finally, <laughs> you've been dreaming your whole life to be in front of children and teaching them. And you're finally teaching them like be joyful and enjoy it. And I wrote that, um, even I had to create like a professional portfolio to send out with my resume and I put be joyful in there. And I love that you call it joyful literacy interventions because I've never forgotten her telling me that. Yeah. Um, let me move to uh, Neil Duke, if I may. Yes, please. I want to make the leap uh, mm. to Neil Duke um, for two reasons. Um, I haven't met her personally. Um, I've been holding these these big summits uh, and bringing together experts for teachers, because part of my passion, um, if you call this my retirement, part of my passion uh, in my retirement is to help teachers really get their hands and feet dirty with the research, like to rub shoulders with the researchers that, that, that the biggest difficulty we have as teachers I believe from my, I, I work almost exclusively with teachers. Um, the biggest problem is we don't bridge the gap between the research being done and done very well to translating that into what does it look like in, in the grade one classroom? So, so 
we know what they did in the 1980s and brought it into the 1990s. Uh, how does a teacher even find time to read the research? Never mind, sit down and figure out, okay, if I believe that research and it looks believable, all the signs are there that it should be believable, what would I change in my classroom to accommodate that? And so I'm going to, going to give you an example uh, because you spoke up about uh, trying different things with uh, uh, using orthographic. What did you say you were using? Was I correct? Um, I use orthographic strategies all the time with um, my children who are dyslexic. So yes, sure. Let's, oh, thought, let's use that as an example. Sure. I thought that's what you said. So uh, the teachers I work with, we smile when we use the word, uh, we call it uh, doses, that this child needs more doses. And we got that from a medical doctor. Uh, I was working with a medical doctor during my doctoral program. And he was, he, he said, you know what's wrong with you people? You people being teachers. You know what's wrong with you people? He said, you, you look at look at children as if they all need the same thing. Like you think they all need to learn to read. He said, in my profession, if, um, why don't you think of it my way? In my profession, um, we call it uh, doses. And uh, so our patients come to us with pneumonia. We get hundreds of patients a year that have pneumonia. Do I give them the same thing? Do I all give them the same pill package? No, I don't. I send them for tests because the first thing I want to know is which type of pneumonia is it. I get back the results and I find out it's a bacteria completely different than the lady that was in earlier. So I don't want to give them the same medication. But then I also need to know how much medication to give. Do I give a small dose uh, twice a day for two weeks or do I give uh, three doses a day, a big, three big doses for the first week, and then change it to one dose the next week. So he said, we take every patient into consideration. So couldn't you change dosages that you give your children? Like, do you find out what it is that they have? Do they find, do you find out how bad it is for them? Like, is it really bad? Are they really um, have struggling, having problems? Uh, and you know, it, it was like the lights came on in our heads is, okay, if we have three children sitting around the table with us and they're all struggling, maybe they're struggling in different ways. Maybe they're struggling for different reasons and maybe they need different doses. So we eventually, and, and always a giggle comes with our conversations about this, but one of the things we said and this relates to dyslexic to children with dyslexia we've found some children with dyslexia might need 20 doses of practice with a skill with a word before it gets inter incorporated into long term memory and is usable in in, a, in context um and the the 20 doses might look like three different games that get um, uh, that that the child gets to play with a friend three or four times a week until I assess the child again and discover that they've mastered that word or they've mastered that skill. And so uh, we started to get really excited about the notion of, of assessing children. And we, we developed what we called a circle chart 
that had, let's just use the alphabet as an example, had all the alphabet on it. And a filled in circle means they'd mastered it. A half circle means they needed more doses, practice in other words. A blank circle might mean they need explicit instruction. And uh, when, so I assess as I have time through through the week, it's not arduous. It's uh, maybe while I'm looking over their shoulder, asking a few questions and mark it down on the paper. But suddenly by Christmas, I've got a little group of kids that still don't know the letter B and I could spot them because they all have half circles. They come over and play a game with me. And so uh, joy and play is built into everything we do because play is the vehicle through which children learn. We've known that since Piaget first brought it to our attention and that only gets bigger and bigger. That's how children learn. So um, I'd like what Neil Duke, Duke has done now she, in the work that I found of hers. Um, she's done a fabulous job of taking a simple view of reading, uh, of word recognition, and breaking it into her model, which is phonological awareness, alphabet principles, phonics knowledge, decoding skills, and recognition of words at sight, which are sight words, right? This is almost exactly what we've included in Joyful Literacy, because that's what the National Reading Panel told us, and it's what the NELP report told us in 2009 when it uh, was developed. We're going to see new ones when, in 2025, there's another massive report that comes out. We're going to find some new ones that we should be focused on. So she did a fantastic job of taking that concept of word recognition as being critical and broadening it so that we could get more specific with children. We could get right into what the issues were with them. Um, so she used a lot of bridging processes related to the language comprehension as well, uh, where she includes in bridging processes, um, uh, print concepts, reading fluency, vocabulary, knowledge, morphological awareness, which applies more to the older children, graphophonological, semantic, cognitive flexibility. I haven't had time to look that up. So there's an I don't know for you. I don't know how to define that for you. And, and we I'm, talked about it actually on a recent episode oh, with another you? guest. Yes. You listen to that episode first, obviously. I think uh, the beautiful part is it's okay to not know. And you know, oh, I'm making that mental check. I'm going to go back and, and understand. No problem there. <laughs> and it was new to us at the time too, set ver for variability and some of those that other things. That makes me feel better. So I've got a <laughs> model out and now I could look it up. Um, but over on her left part, she has reading as the end result uh, over on the right side. Um, but over on the left side, she has put in the active self-regulation. That's what we love about that model is we talk about metacognition almost every single episode. Yeah. And how a lot of times that's the missing piece of just having the students engaged and noticing, do am I understanding it? Am I reading this? You know, and it just takes that. A lot of our struggling students that we've worked with others over the years are so passive about their learning. They've had years of failure and they're just sort of passive observers of their own school experience. And when you can bring that metacognition in, reading becomes more active, you know? 
We use uh, practice uh, practice centers um, for all of our classrooms that I work with use pla uh, practice centers uh, for the doses to give the kids the extra doses, but also because it's all play, it's all games, it's all um, it's all hands-on, it's uh, sharing, it's peer learning, it's uh, it's joyful. Um, I like to say my favorite time is to stand in a doorway, look across the room and see 25 children all actively engaged in games and play and fun and laughing and uh, printing in the shaving, printing their names in the shaving cream and then wiping it off and spraying some more on and, and taking turns printing their names. Um, uh, Two little boys over there slapping the sticky notes on the floor because they're and they have neckties tied around their foreheads because they're karate chopping the sight words they're learning. That's over at the sight word center. So that um uh everything looks like kids are having fun, everything looks joyful, and you can walk amongst the groups and you can assess what they're learning. That that to me is like heaven. Well, and even even if it's not like I, I work with some fourth graders this year and it's not quite as shaving creamy, you know, and fun as that. But um, the teacher had said, you know what, what I'm doing with vocabulary is not working like this. These ESOL group is not progressing in the vocabulary. Miss Betts says, resource teacher. Would you help me come up with a new vocabulary program for them to follow? And so I went through all my resources and found one. Day one, we tried it. And within five minutes, one of the girls in the group said, this is so fun. And I mean, it was just vocabulary, like worksheets and things. It wasn't like a game or anything. But I went, the teacher came back later at planning and said, how did it go? And I said, she said it was fun, which means it's just right for her. Exactly. Because over the years, that's what every student says. As soon as I give them work that is beyond, that is within their ZPD, they say it's fun. So I've estimated that there are about uh, depends whether you include the sight words as a skill or not. So let, let's assume we don't. There are in the K and one in most K1 curriculums, there are over 200 skills that a child has to learn to be able to read proficiently. I mean, the alphabet takes up. Look how many the alphabet takes up just simply knowing uppercase and lowercase. So you can get to 200 pretty quickly. And we we initially created the circle charts to because how how do you know when you look across a classroom and there's 200 skills and you've got 25 children? How do you possibly know which children know which skills or which ones need just a bit more practice, a few more doses? Or how can you keep that in your teacher head? And so the circle circle charts were our solution and have been fabulous. And we've just recently um, uh, turned it over to a tech company who's who's just this year turned it into an app where teachers uh, can just with a, a fingertip touch, keep track of every skill for every child, pull up uh, child summaries, a summary for each child in a printout fashion, a whole class printout on the letter B who knows the letter B and who doesn't. So, um, and that's Sprig Learning. We'll, um, we will link to them in the show notes. And can I just um, add to that, that that knowledge of all those discrete skills is usually, we mentioned this before, it's, it's, it's limited usually to just those kindergarten and first grade teachers, you know, because they're the real 
early foundational skills reading experts. And so I've had many colleagues at second and third grade level, they receive a student who is a kindergarten or first grade leveled reader in their second or third grade classrooms, and they're not sure how to help them because they don't have that understanding of how those skills build on each other and how they're all laid out. And, you know, I mean, so these upper grade teachers, they've always looked at me kind of funny when I've done phonemic awareness activities with struggling readers. Like, why are you playing with pictures? And why are you having the kids blend sounds? Because they don't always know those skills. I work with uh, school districts. That's where I do my work. School districts hire me to come in and, and help their teachers initiate some of these changes. And one of the things I insist on, much to everyone's chagrin, is that at the beginning of September, they assess uh, all of their grade twos and their grade threes on alphabet knowledge. Uh, because we find, um, especially in schools um, that have uh, unusual populations, here in, in Canada, it's Indigenous, our Indigenous population is our struggling population. Um, we've found half classes of grade two children who can't, who do not know the alphabet fluently. And, and I say immediately, but don't you understand they can't decode? If they can't, if they don't know the alphabet, they cannot decode. It's impossible. And if they get to grade five and they still don't know some of the letters of the alphabet, they can't decode properly then either. It's a really, really important thing that we... We have to, as you're saying, Shannon, we have to stretch this up because you can't miss these skills. You can't skip them. These are, that's why they're called the foundational skills. They are the foundation for reading. I, I often hear um, too that teachers will say, but I'm obligated to teach um, grade level standards. Well, you can't teach grade level standards if you have a missing foundation. And so I think that the, the difficulty um, is that that teachers don't know um, what those expectations are. And then there's not enough support necessarily um, for the teachers to be able to say, something is wrong with this kid. How do I do this? Because what we, what I hear often is, well, they have to, uh, the, the student first has to qualify for special education in order to get that help. But that's not necessarily true. Our, our RTI programming should absolutely be identifying those discrete skills for, of our learners. Whether the area is math or, or reading, there's a lot of discrete skills that have to be met before you can teach grade level standards. And so I, I hear it almost as an excuse when I am speaking with um, groups of teachers in, in meetings and things like that. And I think that the stigma is, is still there oh, I don't want to get in trouble for not teaching grade level standards, but we're going to get in trouble and our children are already in trouble if they are missing those foundational skills. So I think just like you said at the very beginning when you were speaking about how there's this war between phonics and decoding, and we sort of set that term phonics aside, I think what we really need to do is come back to foundational skills um, so that, that teachers can be comfortable um, um, searching for what are those skills that my students are missing? Um, because I, I see that every time I go to assess my first students is let's look at their alphabetic knowledge. Do, and, and it, it shocks me at times when I have a third grader that comes to me and I say, just write the alphabet, just write it for me. 
and they are unable to actually write the entire alphabet in order or um, it can only go a few. This this is a real issue and it happens to many students um, all over. So thank you so much for bringing it up. I just wanted to share that tidbit. Okay, the, the last little thing that I wanted, it's not so little. I It might be a surprise to you. It certainly was a surprise to me because I'm always looking for the next step. Um, your, your listeners can't see it. It's a new publication by NAEYC. Um, and we know that their publications are absolutely reliable. Uh, when they do their homework, they do their homework. So it's the National Association for the Education of Young Children. It's called Literacy Learning for Infants, Toddlers, and Preschoolers. And one of the four authors is Nell K. Duke. And I am ecstatic. Um, Sonia Cabell is is also one of the authors, and she's going to be at our Science of Reading Summit in um, May. Um, he practices for educators, and you know what they've done? Uh, the NELP report said really clearly, we can't get down to the three-year-olds to assess whether they should be learning the alphabet or not, because not enough research has been done yet. There's more research needed to know whether two and three-year-olds are ready to actually start learning literacy skills. Here it is. Here it is. Activities, ideas, how to in introduce vowels. Oh, my gosh. If we could get our preschoolers ready for kindergarten so that they came into kindergarten with a lot of these skills and take that load off the kindergarten and grade one teachers. But they have the research that shows I, I laughed. There was one page uh, talking about the alphabet, teaching the alphabet. And they said, well, now you wouldn't be trying to teach infants the alphabet. And I thought, like, how, how extreme are we getting that, that we're saying, well, maybe we'll leave the infants for another stage. <laughs> but the research is here about the readiness and it's all done with play. It's all done with uh, active learning with hands-on. This is a beautiful book. Um, I just uh, emailed the superintendent of the Washington district that I work with and said, buy it for every preschool teacher. I'll see you at the end of January. Um, and so I'm so happy to see, because this is this is the wave. When I say there's there's another wave due, this is part of the wave is is what should we be doing with our preschoolers related to literacy? We've never really known quite what the limit was. So I'm so excited about this book and I wanted to share it with you. So I have a question for you. Yeah. Um, so you said that the Simple View of Reading came out um, from the lens of they were looking for um, where to start with reading intervention. Yeah. Um, what about Nell Duke's work? Like what, what was the reasoning behind when she or did she just see we need to look deeper into simple view of reading and break it out further or yes. okay she she looked at this work and wanted to specify okay right? what like, the word recognition means versus what, what language comprehension exactly but okay as she defines it word recognition means probably four or five different things uh like phonological awareness syllables um, breaking words into syllables and phonemes. Um, you can't 
recognize the word if you don't know the alphabet. If you don't know how letters work together in phonics, you can't. So she she has taken good solid work and broken it down. Um, I would add a few things in here. Um, uh, one of the strategies that I've found is most effective is using daily fluent reading, daily fluency, um, uh, echo reading uh, with kindergarten, right as low as kindergarten children and teaching. Oh, this, this is something important I wanted to say. So um, Goff and Tumner's work on language uh, comprehension um, and, and on text comprehension, uh, we're now putting both those comprehensions right into the kindergarten class. We're starting in kindergarten. And, and that's the emphasis this work has had on me. He's right. They're right. It's so important. Why are we waiting till grade two or grade three to teach comprehension? So we we use we're using usually poetry, and the kids start on Monday, and Monday's the introduction of the poem. Tuesday we look for the comprehension in it. Uh, Wednesday we look for the the letters that we've been learning. Each day it's a teaching tool. And on Friday, it's a performance uh, where we all perform it together for an audience because that brings to life the importance of reading. And it also is peer support. So we, in one group that I videoed, we had a child who didn't speak. He was in grade three and he still was not speaking voluntarily. We, we thought he could speak, but he was rarely speaking. Um, I've got video of him with his whole class of kids doing the poem uh, at the end of November in grade three. And he is one of the most active people doing the poem. And it was the words were coming out of his mouth. Um, and that, that's the kind of joy and stimulation um, where we can work in all of these different things. These, these don't belong in different boxes, these different headings. So when we do, and it's only a 10 to 15 minute poem a day, it doesn't take up much time, but everything we're teaching gets pulled into the meaning of reading and the excitement of reading and the joy of reading, uh, even if they can't read yet, it doesn't matter. Because they can have oral language comprehension. Absolutely. Yeah. Can you, can you um, walk us through a little bit about the development of that understanding of language comprehension from what does it look like from um, Goff and Tumner's work versus, you know, the, maybe the skills that now Duke has brought out and defined more clearly. I could share with you mine. Um, I said, uh, um, I have defined the reading comprehension skills to a greater extent than Nell Duke has. So I'll okay. share mine. Sure. Yeah. I've got a big chart and I taped it to my stool so that if we <laughs> I could share it with you. You might need to take a picture of it for our listeners too. Yeah. So uh, Goff and Tumner uh, really focused on telling and retelling the story, synthes synthesizing, which is the skill. But the skills that um, I have a team, it's not just me. I have a team of teachers that work with me um, and we broke this down together uh, that and what we recommend in our classrooms is that you teach one skill a week so that you're constantly 
constantly dealing with comprehension every day, every poem, every shared reading uh, that you do, you're constantly looking at comprehension. So um, making connections, um, your own background connections with the text. So there's one. Questioning, do you, as a child, do you ask and answer questions? Do you raise some when you're reading a story? Uh, so that we're self-generating the seeking of comprehension. The third one, we identified seven, by the way. The third one is, do you create your own images uh, that come from what you read? Do you, and, and are they your own? Not replicating what's in the book, but your own, maybe your own fantasy of what you would have done differently if you'd been the character. The fourth one, um, explaining what's most important about a word about a character, uh, about an event, um, can you make, can you, can you put that in order of what you think was the most important piece? Uh, monitoring comprehension, do you use strategies to draw conclusions about meaning in the text? So uh, do you have your own strategies? Can you work with another child to create a strategy? The fifth or the sixth one, inferring, do you draw conclusions and make predictions, even though you haven't heard the rest of the story? And so we felt that we blur them too frequently, that each of these are very precise skills. So that might become eight next year, but it's seven right now. We came up with seven. And then we didn't want primary teachers to feel like I've got to cover seven comprehension questions. So we started suggesting to them, we had these charts made up and they get put up in the classroom wall. And so the teacher that will ask the kids, well, pick one for this week. Which which one are we going to work on this week? And that's the one with all the stories we read this week. That's the one we work on. And so the kids are growing their skills as they're doing their work in the classroom. I'd love that you brought this up. This reminds me a lot of um, one of my favorite and most influential books on my teaching career was um, strategies that work by Steph Harvey and Ann Goodvis, and they talk about many of the same comprehension strategies. And I, ever since I got that book in maybe 2004, I've, you know, taught visualizing and taught in making inferences. And I did teach them as explicit skills, but then also showed students that at different instances in your reading, you're going to need to use one of the, or maybe a combination of those skills. Sometimes you might ask questions in order to make an inference or things like that. And, um, I've been very confused lately in the science of reading community because they've been sort of talking about comprehension as though the skills weren't as important and the strategies weren't important. And it was just mainly a background knowledge issue, but that's so hard to measure. And that's so hard to teach. And I do believe in teaching background knowledge and weaving as much, you know, nonfiction and thematic teaching as you can in, but I, I it, personally, in my own career, I have found a lot of success um, teaching my students these comprehension strategies. And not only were they successful in my classroom, but they went on to be successful in the later grades. So I know it wasn't just an isolated incident. Sure. And, and the reason that's so important is we don't know what's going on in their little heads. Like I, I suggest to teachers in primary grades, don't use silent reading. I mean, I, I, I can't really produce any research that says don't use silent reading. But in fact, we don't know what they're thinking when they're looking at a book. So I did do my own funny little study. It was in, I work with an Indigenous school in our own community here, so I could pop in as frequently as I want. 
And one day I went in the classroom. This was the day I I decided to take this position. It was a grade two class and, and the kids were silent reading for 10 minutes, 15 minutes while the teacher took a group. And they all had books at their level. I know they did because they were assigned leveled books for this particular strategy. So it should have worked. One child very cleverly had his hand like this and his eyes were closed. And I had to, I was sneaking around the room. I had to bend down to see what exactly was going on in there. Well, he wasn't reading. I don't know what he was doing, but you can't read with your eyes closed. Um, another one had his book upside down. He was had his book right in his lap and he had, eyes were open. The book was upside down. He wasn't reading. I counted seven children in the room who I could prove were not reading. I was I was friendly with the teacher for, or, or I wouldn't have done it. But then the teacher and I sat down and talked about it. And now I just proposed, you know, partner read, put them together and have them whisper read to each other. At least you know that they're reading and that they're enjoying another person's company. Well, and you need to, I, I always told the students that um, our talks about comprehension were making the implicit explicit. It was taking the invisible work that of thinking that my brain was doing when I read and making it visible to the students because they couldn't open my brain and watch it think. But if I talked about it, again, that metacognition piece, I could show them, this is how visualizing the scene helps me understand where the characters are going, helps me understand if it's a flashback or if it's in the present in the story, where the characters are moving to, which character's talking, because in chapter books, the dialogue gets a little confusing to follow. And um, anyway, I'm just glad that you mentioned that because I think that that is so important. And think of the vocabulary expansion as well. Yes. When you're actively using comprehension, you're building vocabulary. I think the piece that I keep kind of coming back to is I like that the children are able to generate which strategy they start with um, or that they can choose. You can choose any strategy to start with. They're all equally important. And so giving, um, you know, it's an explicitly taught skill, but it gives a lot of choice to the children to be able to work on on one thing. And I think that that shares ownership um, uh, for the children, too. So I really appreciate that. I feel like we've been so regimented um, uh, in the way that we present work to kids. And I think that they really do appreciate and and love the opportunity to have ownership in, in what they choose to learn too and how they choose to learn it. Well, and starting with making connections and questioning are the two easiest to start with, especially in kindergarten, because every student wants to say, oh, this story reminds me of my mom and this story reminds me of my sister. And that just immediately activates that thinking voice. And, I, you know, and then I say, okay, students, that's your brain wanting to think about the story and wanting to understand the story. And the more you do that, the more the story is going to mean to you. You know, and then you you teach them in order. You don't start with inferencing, (laughs) but you teach them in that order of complexity so that then they can build that toolbox of strategies, especially to pull out, um, like you said, that self-monitoring comprehension um, or like um, Nell Duke says, you know, that active monitoring of their reading of, oh, I just read a page and I didn't understand it. You know, like maybe we're at the doctor's office and we just read a page of an article that we have no idea what we just read. And we've got to pay attention and go, I need to go back and maybe I need to try one of these strategies. Yeah. Um, while we have you here, is there anything else that you think that reading teachers um, 
you can really impart to them uh, as some last little tidbits. You shared such great information with us. Thank you so much. Well, I mentioned the daily fluency. Mm -hmm. um, all the teachers that use it love it. And kids will not let the weekend without their performance. I mean, it, um, I have never seen such turned on children ex as, as I see in this fluency piece. First of all, it's making sense of everything they're learning that week. So if they if they're learning certain letters or blends or or prefixes or suffixes, they're coming up in the reading every day and you're pointing them out. So it makes meaning of the job of learning and the job of teaching. But the fun that they have so much fun, they're talking props by Tuesday. So that's if you want to just liven up your classroom and turn your kids on to the uh, excitement of reading out loud. And with the Kazen ones, we use echo reading. So we read, well, you know what echo reading is. So we use echo reading liberally. Um, but if if I could ingest, in fact, I say when I start with a new school district, I say to all the teachers, you can't implement everything at once. But if you want to have a heck of a lot of fun and turn your kids on to reading, do the daily reading experience. And each day, just remember, is a different skill. So the first day might be comprehension questions after the poems read you all read it together um teacher models at first then you read it together and then every day subsequently everybody reads it together but each day you're choosing a different skill so it might be comprehension might be initial sounds might be rhyming words might be whatever you're teaching is what you're focusing on in the poem and then have the principal in on friday to watch your kids perform uh it's just the most it's only 10 minutes and a lot of our teachers have parents um, at the doorway to the school as they pick up their kids, even in COVID, to watch their kids perform in the doorway on, on their way out to get in their cars. So that's one just to have fun. Um, practice centers is a way to get a lot of doses in. If you can group your kids um, using Circle charts, if you don't have the technology, but the technology, group your kids so that the same kids who need the same skill are getting the doses together. That multiplies your uh, learning assistance um, by a lot. Um, oh, um, Goff and Tumner um, and Nell Duke mention executive function skills. And Mary, uh, are you jumping up and down right now? <laughs> that is Mary's. I'm clapping my hands. That's, yes. I harp on it probably every single episode because executive <laughs> functioning cool. is how we get stuff done. So if they don't have those discrete skills yet um, of of getting stuff done or understanding how to approach things, uh, yeah, we have to teach it. I'm so glad you mentioned that. You've you've quickly become one of my favorite people, <laughs> Dr. Janet Moore. <laughs> and motivation and engagement rolls right along with that. Of yes, course. It does. So um, I just wish your listeners well. And if I could be of any help, um, I'm. Uh, you can go to my website is Joyful Literacy, um, uh, Joyful Literacy Online uh, dot com. And we have lots of ideas and activities there. We leave them up. We call it our library. 
So when we have a summit and we get great handouts that we think would be great games for teachers, we just leave them on the site so that people can borrow them. So lots of teachers tell us they just go to visit to get some new ideas to try out in their classroom. We're very teacher oriented and classroom oriented. I love that. Um, I just appreciate your whole um, attitude about having a more broad view of things. And that's how we are um, on this. I think the reading wars, you said they were really active in the 80s. We feel they're really active now. It has gotten to be a very ugly place on Twitter. Um, One militant person actually said, let's just leave the word nuance aside in 2022. And I'm like, no, nuance is the people who have experience and they know that they're not just going to throw the baby out with the bathwater. (laughs) So um, a lot of what you said reminded me of a discussion we had with Nancy Young. Y'all are on the same part of the world. Um, You know, Nancy Young with the updated ladder of reading and writing we had her on here um and we were asking her why she updated the ladder and why she chose such precise language in order to do that and she kept bringing up the dosage um word as well and that um view of just that um she was worried that her original ladder was misunderstood and that all of a sudden everybody was giving very large doses of structured literacy to every student and it was almost too much and that like students like um, Mary's older daughter really need a more inquiry based approach. You can tell her these are the three letter combinations that make the long A sound. And maybe you'll find some few other irregular words and then she's ready to go, you know, and she's ready to go find those and kind of create the phonics patterns and rules herself because that's enough for a student like that on the top part of the ladder. And so I appreciate that. I guess that nuanced, <laughs> that's not a bad word to me, um, the nuanced approach and that we just need to look at the research carefully and we need to understand what works. And um, like Mary said, if you've just met one student with dyslexia, you've just met one student with dyslexia. My mom wants me to like systematize the way I teach reading is intervention. And I'm like, mom, I can't. Every student is different. And every year I get students who nothing else works and I've got to find more things to teach them how to read. I can't systematize it. I don't know how to, you know, make something that's going to work for every student because I just have to work with the data and the the students in front of me at the time. I really appreciate that too. I think people, we we did an episode a long time ago about, um, is there a magic wand for teaching reading? And um, there isn't. Uh, but part of the answer, you know, we said comes with um, multi-sensory approaches, but the correct answer really is the dosage. And I think that people often um, associate Orton-Gillingham um, as, uh, you know, such a gold standard of, of teaching reading. And the reason is, is because it's prescriptive. It's a prescriptive approach to um working with a child and their difficulties and prescribing the amount of dosage of, of intervention that they need. And so I I love the way that you've described that as a private tutor. It's, um, it's something that I do all the time, um, with a student one-on-one in a classroom setting, it gets to be more complicated. And I really appreciate that you have given ideas for how to assess those students and do observations um, to make sure that that, that works um, better too. The, the second compliment that, uh, that I would really like to share that I really appreciate it is you have such a great long view of what education is, um, where we've come from 
the, the pendulum does swing. We have some some big cycles of, of new things coming down the pike. And that's true. And I think being um, open to that coming and being ready for that to come and not creating a, a them versus us approach to it, but an and I'm still learning approach, I think is really helpful um, uh, for us as professionals. So, Well, I feel like um, I have two new best literacy friends and I wish I could just pull you into my room on a regular <laughs> basis for these chit chats. Thank, Thank you so you. much for having me. I want to look into coming to your summit one day. I, I think that would be lovely. I would love to attend as well. It's, um, it's advertised on the website. Mm -hmm. I, if, if it's not up now, it will be. I think they start registrations on Monday. Right. Uh, um, it's May 11th and 12th, and it's a Zoom one, so you could attend from anywhere. That's fantastic. Well, we really appreciate your time, and we can't wait. We'll, um, of course, in our show notes, we will put lots of links um, to all of your um, websites, some of the um, uh, other resources that you've shared with us to the um, the article by um, Nell Duke. We'll make sure that we um, also share the early literacy um, resource too, the um, N-A-E-Y-C uh, manual. This is a very important book, so I'm really glad you're going to do that. I, I can predict that this book is going to lead the way for preschools internationally Canada and the United States, we do the same things. Uh, this That's book true. is going to lead the way for us and make I, a big difference to our kids going into public schools. I'm really excited. I work very closely with my daughter's preschool and I have for many years now, and um, I can't wait to share that resource. That's probably going to be the end of the year gift <laughs> that I give. <laughs> um, well, thank you again. And we really appreciate your time today. And we look forward to chatting with you again, hopefully in the future. And Shannon, I see that you're still there. Mm -hmm. Thank you, too. Thank you so much. Have a wonderful rest of the day, everyone.